makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Betu was the low. Tonya was Yanke, Chante was the Napechus up yellow. Le Chante, Owogalake, Le Unkipiki, E was the low. Greetings and good day, relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. This word speaks from the heart. It's good for all of us to be here. You're listening to First Forces Radio and Teokasen Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. Our first and only guest for the hour is Dr. Tink Tinker. Dr. Tink Tinker, who is a citizen of the Washaji or the Osage Nation and has been an activist in urban American Indian communities for four decades. He joined the faculty at ILIF School of Theology in 1985 and brought an American Indian perspective to this predominantly Euro-Christian school. Dr. Tinker is committed to a scholarly endeavor that takes seriously both the liberation of Indian peoples from their historic oppression as colonized communities and the liberation of Euro-Christian white Americans, the historic colonizers and oppressors of Indian peoples, whose self-narrative typically avoids naming the violence committed against Indians in favor of a romance narrative that justifies their Euro-Christian occupancy and Indian lands. And I spoke with Dr. Tink Tinker about an article released in the New Yorker magazine called It's Time to Rethink the Idea of the Indigenous, written by Manveer Singh, who interviewed several indigenous peoples, in this case, Maasai activist Parkipuni. We go now to the interview. So let me just read what I can, and it will open it up, because I think this is part of how we can think about this word indigenous. It had to do with his time he spent also. He didn't realize basically he was indigenous till he came here to the United States. You'll read that in a, in later on. And the title of it is, It's Time to Rethink the Idea of the Indigenous out of the New Yorker magazine. And many groups who identify as indigenous don't claim to be first peoples, but many who did come first don't claim to be indigenous. And can the concept escape its colonial past? And this is by... Manveer Singh, 
I'm supposing he's Indian or East Asian. And on August 3rd, 1989, the indigenous identity evolved. Um, a Maasai activist and a former member of the Tanzanian parliament spoke before the UN Working Group on Indigenous Populations in Geneva, and the first African to ever to do so. And, quote, our cultures and way of life are viewed as outmoded, inimical to a national pride and a hindrance to progress, he said. And as a result, pastoralists like the Maasai group from Africa, along with the hunter-gatherers, suffer, quote, suffer from common problems which characterize the plight of indigenous peoples throughout the world. The most fundamental rights to maintain our specific cultural identity and the land that constitutes the foundation of our existence as a people are not respected by the state and fellow citizens who belong to the mainstream population, unquote. So he attended a school after British authorities demanded that each family contribute a son to be educated. And his grandfather urged him to flunk out, but he refused, quote, I already had a sense of how Maasai were being treated. And he told the anthropologist Hodgson, um, in 2005, that he decided that he must go on. He eventually earned an MA in developmental studies from the University of Dar es Salaam. And he also, in the end, he was sent to the United States to learn about proper ranches, to take care of cattle better. The Maasai are a pastoralist. And he traveled around until one day a Navajo man invited him to visit the Navajo Nation, the reservation in the Southwest. He said he stayed with them for two weeks and then with the Hopi for two weeks. And it was my first introduction to the indigenous world. I was struck by the similarities of our problems. And he met with tribal nations from New Mexico and Canada to sharpen his understanding of indigenous issues and allied with the International Working Group for Indigenous Affairs in, in Copenhagen. By the time Parkin Puni, which is the man's name I'm, I'm uh, quoting, was Maasai, Parkin Puni showed up in Geneva. The concept of, quote, indigenous had already undergone major transformations. And the word from the Latin indigena, meaning native or sprung from the land, has been used in English since at least 1588. When a diplomat referred to Samoyed peoples in Siberia as indigene, or people bred upon that very soil, like native indigenous, was used not just for people, but for flora and for fauna as well, suffusing the term with an air of wildness and detaching it from history and civilization. So again, like native, indigenous served as a partition distinguishing white settlers and in many cases their slaves from the non-Europeans who occupied lands before them. Then came the 1960s and 70s. In the United States, the Red Power Movement spawned groups like the American Indian Movement and the International Indian Treaty Council, inspired by decolonization activists from these groups, coalesced, turning indigeneity into a global identity. What linked its members was firstness. I wanted to ask you to come on, Tink, because you remember these times. You lived through these times when they were fighting over the word indigenous peoples or people at the UN. You remember because you were in the activism of those 60s and 70s, and you, you continue to do that, I would say, in international circles as well as national circles here, but in tribal circus, circles as you do. And I'm wondering, you know, what was your thought to the first title, It's Time to Rethink the Idea of Indigenous? 
because we can hear it all along that those who really don't want to be responsible can say, but I'm Indigenous too. And to me, that doesn't mean anything because it's just the term that's conveniently applied to escape the reality of, of what has happened to the indigeneity in all of us. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a one of my students, a white student, uh, with with two PhDs <laughs> yesterday. Comes from a big family. And one of his brothers was arguing um, he's a, a techie with uh, a big-time job and big-time income and uh, pretensions of some kind of philosophical discourse that he's not very good at, but he wants to claim everyone is indigenous somewhere. And he's saying, we're now indigenous to this land, <laughs> which means the word indigenous no longer has any meaning. It's like uh, when I, I deal with the word sacred uh, in, in a school of theology where that's an important word, right? And I try to tell them, we don't have that word in any Indian language. Because if we did have that word, we would have to say, you know, and the, the missionary said, well, we'll take the word, the Osage word, Wakon. Uh, you know, same as Wakan, Lakota. So, Wakon means sacred. Uh, well, that worked for the missionaries, but it doesn't work yet for Indians because for us, every living thing is Wakon. Every rock is Wakon. Eventually, every place is Wakon. Everyone is Wakon, uh, which means the word sacred doesn't have any meaning anymore. <laughs> and the word Wakon, of course, is much richer than the word sacred in, in uh, English or any Euro-Christian language. As Albert Whitehead used to say, it, it's Wakon. Uh, the, the the one who is able to give life and take life. You know, as we in Canada, they, they call it First Nations. So indigenous means the implication of being first. But then that puts us in linear order of the European thought. We were first rather than being yep. original. So the, 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 the company of language we keep, it's it's almost we have to constantly standardize or codify our language so that they understand what we're talking about. And I think going to the institutions to do that because we're institutionally uh, educated and then we're organized to go ahead and go to the UN or other institutions to explain our beingness, so to speak. And so we accept their definitions of indigenous when, like you say, we don't really don't have that. And, you know, what, and they're looking for solutions to the problem. And we, we already know who we are, not what they think we are. Well, we have to adopt their language and their discourse. What does it mean to be a First Nation? We, we have to adopt their word nation, Nazio, out of the Latin. And you know, a group of people who are born together, live together. Uh, but in our Indian way of thinking, we may not be the First Nation. Uh, in the Osage world, we know at least from our early stories of arrival on the land, that the elk preceded us. Maybe they're the first nation. The eagle, the, uh, the, the, the uh, golden eagle, they brought us down 
from 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 the star world from the milky way uh maybe they're the first nation uh they certainly seem to have been here before us <laughs> but in order to play the game the way the Euro christians want us to play it we have to be a human nation and the first nation means first human nation that means we have to colonize ourselves in order to become a first nation even so it's not a decolonial act it's it's a participation in the colonization of our peoples it's like the word sovereignty what in the hell does that mean it reminds me of to me it would put my experience into a cultural competency i'm competing to see how much native i am according to them because i'm not wearing the garments or the the traditional, you know, regalia or anything. I'm Indians and native people don't exist anymore because you're not who you are. But yet understanding culture doesn't mean that you're stagnant in that place. And and as you and I know, we, we deal in this society. And when I go home, it's another world. And I'm sure maybe they don't see the, the connection to that, but the relationship that I go outside and I say hello to the ancient ones, to the plants and animals and whatnot, the rocks. But when I have to address humans, it's a different idea because of I have to use their language to put myself in place for them. You see, in I think I think basically I'm tired of doing that. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, uh, and it, 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 but it's never ending because we're surrounded. Uh, the land is occupied. We live in occupied land. It's not only occupied, but it's been rearranged around their uh, principles of property. So I have to be careful even where I go because I might be trespassing on someone else's property. Never mind that it's my grandmother, or wherever I step. Writing a piece now on the rights of nature because every law school in the country seems to have now a course on the rights of nature and they think they're doing something really progressive and really liberal and Indians should really love them because uh, we value nature so highly. We don't even have a word for nature unless we mean the whole universe, which includes us. It includes my little finger as part of nature, but that's not what they mean by nature. You know, I start this essay talking about water because when the Osages came down, the land was covered with water. There was no place to stand. And that's where the elk stepped up. And a bull elk he threw himself on the ground and created dry land. And then shook all the seeds out of his fur that planted the land with growth. And, and that's when the Wajaji could finally walk across the land and begin to claim their new homeland. And one of the first people they met was the man of the river, whose name is Wajaji. So when I was asked by a journalist, a water conservation journalist about water, I shocked him to his roots by saying, I'm not a water conservationist. In order to be a water conservationist, I have to put a monetary value on my grandfather. I can't do that. Do you put a monetary value on your grandmother, your grandfather, your aunt, your uncle, your kids. You don't want to press that too far because you Christians have sold their kids into slavery. <laughs> uh, 
but by nature, these progressive Euro-Christians don't mean water. They mean rivers, lakes outside of the city up in the mountains here. But they surely don't mean water because water's an it. Water is a commodity. That's what comes out of the pipe when you open the tap. It's what floods your yard when you're watering the grass. It's what you use uh, in industrial farming to flood fields in order to grow crops for uh, the industrial market. That's not nature. You know, what is nature then in their mind? That's a complex abstraction. They can't tell you right off what nature is. But as they describe it, it becomes clear to me as I listen to my white graduate students who want to get back into nature during spring break. Ah, nature is somewhere at a distance outside of the city, preferably up in the mountains, in the trees, preferably not in a house, but in a tent. That's nature. It doesn't have to do with the well-manicured gardens of uh, the educational institution where they're studying or the city parks around them or the lawns in, in the richer neighborhoods. <laughs> nature is what you get outside of the city. And it becomes clear that uh, nature must somehow involve an automobile because you've got to get there. So it involves fossil fuels. And while houses may not be nature, tents, it seems, do qualify along with ripstop backpacks and, and, and uh, propane gas stoves. Uh, and I guess plastics would have to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> well, you know, that's not our world at all. In our world, when I open the tap to wash my face in the morning, I'm talking to my grandfather, to Wajaji, and taking his blessing and washing my, my, my face. And it's he is not an it. He is not a commodity. He is a priceless relative. When we talk about the value of nature, what is it to us? But we don't understand what is our value to nature. The other thinking is that we're giving back to earth or overtaking. We call it reciprocity, something given reward work out of the economy mind of exchange, right? And then sure. hear the terms of indigenous, of Native America, all these terms, um, like they're filling this, and I'm referring to this article, filling this conceptual space. And we're worried about becoming primitive because that's their idea is that it's along a linear line of, if I'm indigenous, then I'm native, then I'm what before that. But yet we don't want to go there because... We don't want to go that far because the conversation changes to what they're avoiding in their own minds that we lived in a heavily romanticized version of what they think we are. At least they think yeah. that. Yeah. In uncorrupted, primitive societies. And so this conflation of indigeneity along with primitives, right, can be, it's kind of like stagnant. You're stuck with intellectualizing what indigenous is rather than living it. So we're using reality to, while I have something here, I have an indigenous, um, I have a uh, definition for it. But like you say, there's no word for, for nature or many native peoples. So how can we say indigenous is this? 
according to them. And I think what you and I are talking about is that we see clearly what Elton Pernock talks about. We are all caught up in this colonial coma. And this colonial coma perceives Earth as an it, like you say. You say. So colonial coma comes in many forms, and we, we are intoxicated with it. We're not awake. And so I use this phrase, you cannot waken someone who's pretending to be awake because they're using all the correct terminology to escape the reality of we're in this coma, we're still asleep. Well, they're using their terminology, their discourse. And their discourse, we've talked about this before, Teokasen, mm-hmm. is filled with nouns, names of things. We don't even have the word thing in Osage because all people are alive. Our pronouns, e, 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 ta, he, her, and hers, theirs, they, his, and and she. <laughs> mm. They're not gendered or numbered either one. It's all done from context, but there's no word for it. There's no word for thing so that we can't simply commodify something as an object. Likewise, this word nature, if we're going to take it seriously and, and the legal language of rights of nature, and whatever they decide about rights of nature, we, we just hope it's not something like treaty rights, which have no value whatsoever. <laughs> it immediately takes you into that up-down universe of hierarchy, because someone up here has to have the power to grant rights to lesser beings and things. So humans are immediately elevated up here, granting rights to this thing called nature. I'm sorry, but I'm not in a position to grant rights. I'm Eagle Clan, so I'm not in a position to grant rights to eagles. (laughs) Eagles are in more of a position to grant privilege to me uh, by, by taking me in and making me a part of their family, their nation. Likewise, my my daughter who's adopted is Buffalo Clan. She's in a close relationship with buffaloes, not in a position of hierarchy where she grants rights to buffaloes. In fact, buffaloes have always granted privilege to we humans, allowing us to hunt them. And every one of our nations has stories about that agreement, about that treaty, about that, that covenant that we have with the Buffalo Nation or with the elk, or with the deer, or any other of among our relatives that we consume, including corn, beans, and squash, the three grandmothers. Let's talk about the rights and, and as you would say, the responsibilities, the differences between that. But before that, I want to say that, you know, a lot of people say, well, at least we're paying attention to you, the indigenous. It's your powerful beings, you're a powerful part of humanity. But it, like, come to our table mentality because it'll give you platform to the press. At least we're hearing about you, but it's always in this plight of that we are, we're out to claim culture because they said that we're supposed to, and identity, and we're all conflicted. Even them, they don't know what indigenous is about. So everything becomes messy and even modernized through technology. And it's mixed up with, you know, um, text coding and 
it, it gets that far. Even our young people are into the identifying as indigenous. So they, they all put the same uh, paint on their faces and we're losing that identity to that confliction that I'm saying, I'm talking about. So a lot of the native young folks are saying, we have a right to be who we are. And we're forgetting about the responsibility that you're talking about to nature. And I'm wondering who's defining this humanity? As you say, this dogma that we're sitting in, in this dogma of looking from above as authorities and saying, well, this is nature and I'm going to give it right. And that also the identity of the indigenous came from the same institution of giving us the rights to be indigenous. You live here, we live here. And, you know, all this is not working out until we need the land or the resources from that land. Until then, you can be indigenous. Our time is running out because it has for them. Yeah, yeah. As I look at uh, politics across the continent, I'm seeing the resurrection of white supremacy. It never went away, but it's become more vociferous, more powerful, more destructive. Politicians are now reciting it as dogma in Congress, in state legislatures. I spent time in the 80s and into the 90s fighting with prison wardens to give Indian inmates the right to keep their hair long the right to wear a headband if they wanted, the right to use tobacco and other medicines, particularly cedar and sage, sweetgrass. They hated sage because uh, the guards thought it smelled too much like, like weed, marijuana, back in the day. Of course, it doesn't smell anything like marijuana. <laughs> Not that I would know what marijuana smells like. <laughs> But that's a native medicine as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you just have to know when and where and how to use it. But I, I, you know, I fought for those rights. And now, now we've got young boys again across the continent fighting to keep their hair long in schools, fighting to maintain their identity so that the pressure to erase nativeness, indigeneity, is ongoing. And yeah, there are a lot of progressives who just love us to death. I mean that literally. <laughs> they do bring us in. I'm, I'm going up to Milwaukee to give a talk at a conference on aging. I'm the only native out of a half a dozen speakers, um, but they want to know what Indians think about aging. <laughs> I've got an Anishinaabeg student who teaches there at the university in Milwaukee. And I have uh, lifelong friends up on Stockbridge Muncie Reservation. <laughs> so I'm going up there. Yeah, I don't know what my speech will do it to these people at this conference on aging. I don't think it'll do much at all. Well, I think about the responsibility seeing differently that it, it's we take our place with grace and we move on. And I think part of the humanity as defined by the West is that we don't want to be, we want to be the epitome of, of intelligence and domination, basically. And we're going to stay that way at, at any cost. And look what it's costing, because we we don't have consequential thinking about what it is to be indigenous, even to a place, even I, I include me in that assimilation. It really me, keeps me aware that my first radio show was basically called View from the Shore. And from that point on, I, I 
you know, when I said that, it was it was inadvertent. It's like, wow, that's uh, that's something, because you can always see that I don't have the view from the ships. So are are we as indigenous peoples accepting the views from the ships when we never? It's like the two row wampum, right? There's two the canoe and the ship. Right, right. Too many of our people have stepped across from one boat to the other boat, <laughs> and we deal with it in Oklahoma in an especially vociferous way. Those nations in Oklahoma have been so missionized, so Christianized. They not only are completely sold out to this Jesus ideology, which has, as far as I can tell, no relationship to the, that man who lived and died 2,000 years ago in, 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 uh, in Israel, it's a you know a myth that has been invented since then, but they not only have sold out to that, but they've sold out to this notion that we need to honor our native veterans who fight for the freedoms that we love, that we live on reservations. I'm sorry, what was that? I honor native veterans as well. People, people like. Uh, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and countless other natives who fought against the United States, not those who fought for the United States. At some point, we've got to figure out who we are and what our relationship is to our conqueror, to our abuser. We're like all those abused kids who can't let go of their parents, who must blame themselves for their own uh, demise, for their own struggle, for their own PTSD. And we'll be right back with more of Dr. Tink Tinker. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghostors. Thank you. 
Sifri on the album Men of Reason back in 1989. And hey, you're back. Thank you for coming here. This is Teal Kissing Ghost Horse, and you're listening to First Voices Radio. We continue the second half hour with Dr. Tink Tinker, who is a professor of American Indian cultures and religious traditions at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He is Washaji, or of the Osage Nation and has been an activist in urban American Indian communities for four decades. Let's join this the next few minutes with Dr. Tegan Tinker. And thank you for joining us. We've come a long way in a sense that we understand a lot of things through our, I would say, Tink, through our cultural autonomy and you being there in the 60s and 70s and really seeing the movement and how far it's come, you know, and the ways we've been resilient you know, taking our resilience through it all, all this time to maintain this cultural autonomy, to even the idea of that, wait, we do not have rights to nature. It's like you say, nature has more rights to us than we do for towards it, right? So, but the thinking has to change where we can't adapt nature to us, where we have to adapt ourselves to nature like we have. That's right, yeah, that's right. And when I'm thinking about how... This all started during that time in uh, the 60s and 70s, but even before that, like you mentioned, the, the cultural, I mean, the uh, keepers of like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and people 
you know, from all the nations here. When when this actually materialized, because they saw the vision of what we are doing now. We've taken things from this uh, society, the American, you know, the Western way, and now we're using them. And we can say weapons, but that's too easy to go into the warrior aspect of it, war or something. But it's really the language that I know you've worked on and, you know, articulated. Part of that is that we don't even understand our language as you use your language as a base to really see the awareness or the waking up, the wakan. You're not speaking a woke language because your Osage language has actually kept you conscious all this time. So it, it's trendy to, to why I speak a woke language, and it, it's it's still within the box of rationale. So again, we we put the rationale. Um, I heard this the other day. We put the rationale or the reason before the sacredness. Yeah, let me let me say a couple of things about that. One is, I tell my students I have a PhD in being white. The only way I got a PhD was to do white discourse. And I try to put a little of my Indian self into that discourse, and and I knew it wouldn't float back then. This is the 1970s. To that extent, I had to sell out. I've been working ever since then to deconstruct everything I learned in that PhD, to decolonize myself, my mind, my language. And at this late date, I'm in my 79th winter. At this late date, that's an ongoing project. I'm still working on decolonizing myself. Now, as I look around me, I see a lot of Indian academics all of a sudden. When I was doing my PhD, Lee Brightman out there in California, I was in Berkeley, told me there were only 10 Indians with academic doctorates in the world in the mid-70s. That's stunning because... Now there's 10 Indians with PhDs, at least, at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. <laughs> so we've come a long ways. Not all of those Indian PhDs have managed to engage in this process of decolonizing themselves, though. Too many of them still sell out to that Euro-Christian discourse. So we've got a lot of work to do in terms of getting them to... Uh, to, to step up and, and, and take their languages seriously, take, take their own cultures seriously. I read a book by one Indian guy on science, an Indian view of science. And essentially what I told him after I read the book is, you need to go home and spend a couple of ceremony seasons just listening to your elders, and then come back and revise this book. you got work to do yet. And, and I realized... Everything I write, I've got more work to do yet. Uh, I, I think stuff I'm writing now is more along that trajectory than stuff I wrote 20 or 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. And as you know, I've been, I read your stuff back in the 90s and things, and it, it, understanding it, because uh, I never didn't really understand decolonization but because i thought about this way what i sense you have done is because of your experience in both worlds quote unquote um but going in as osage right that intelligence to unlearn the the great intelligence that to unlearn what you've been forced to learn so it takes a lot of 
forte from that uh, indigeneity within you to see the differences. And as you write to them, I'm sensing that you understand it as well as write and articulate it so I can understand it. And what I think we, we I'm trying to do is trying to um, make it simpler for those people's young people's to understand our not polite, but our, our awareness of where we are, like you say, you know, when we have a lot to fess up to, but not so much like a Christian, Christian, we did wrong. We only were, we were forced to live this way. Now we don't have to, you know, that's right. And I think unlearning takes that great deal of intelligence rather than, you know, how we learned because they worked on instructional, you know, learning. This is how you're going to learn it, A through, you know, F, you're graded. And so when I think about you talking about the science writer, native science writer, going back to ceremonies, that's exactly the medicine. Did we forget the medicine of who we are? Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do that. I mean, it's hard to do because I live in the city. I teach in the university. I remember... Uh, uh, my old buddy, uh, who was teaching at Princeton at the time, uh, Alfonso Ortiz, uh, who was from San Juan Pueblo, who who wanted to uh, sit down with his next door neighbor back in the Pueblo and record all his stories and all his songs and then publish them and translate them. And the old man who was a you know, medicine man there at, at San Juan Pueblo, said, Alfonso, you can't record anything. It's not our way. If you want to know these things, you need to come here, live here, and be my apprentice. And Alfonso, a young scholar back then, fresh out of Princeton, always teaching at Princeton, fresh out of the University of Chicago, was said he was really sad because he couldn't take the time away from his academic career to go become this guy's apprentice and become that medicine person. By the time he was later in his life, teaching at the University of New Mexico and living at San Juan Pueblo, finally, he said he wished he had done it when he was much younger. But I, you know, had a job. I had to go to meet my classes. I couldn't just leave. Uh, But every spare moment I could, I was out in Indian community somewhere not writing about stuff, not being an anthropologist, recording what they do, but learning for myself, learning how to be in the world. Uh, You posted something on Facebook uh, about uh, Norbert Running. It was Chris Whipple who uh, you had shared a post of Chris Whipple's. Norbert Running was one of my mentors at Rosebud. Uh, I never danced at uh, Ironwood Hilltop. Uh, I did dance uh, four years at Hollowhorn Bear uh, and then danced uh, again. We took that dance back home to the Osage, to Nilagani, and I danced there with my brother for seven years. And in between, I went up to the Black Hills with uh, a nephew, Wajaji Lakota man, uh, Lesser Moore. And danced with him and, and listened to the old people as much as I could, learned as much as I could. That's part of my decolonizing, is going back and, and paying attention to, to, to those 
people who still maintain those old ways uh, of seeing the world, those old values, uh, and they know the stories and, and, and the songs. There's one other thing I wanted to say earlier, and I'm going to slip it in now real quickly. You know, one, one of those leaders at the Hollow Horn Bear Sundance, in fact, the key leader was Albert Whitehead, a great Lakota linguist. I learned a great deal from Albert, but one of the things Albert told me when he found out back, and this is back in the mid-80s, he found out I was attached to the American Indian movement, and of course, he was not. But what he said to me was, without AIM in the 60s and 70s, we would not be doing any of what we're doing today on Rosebud, bringing the ceremonies back bringing the language back. And I think people need to understand the importance of the American Indian movement in that light, especially as we come up uh, in a few days now, in three days, with the 50th anniversary of the federal siege of AIM at Wounded Knee. That's very... It giving our ancestors the credit for carrying that along and keeping our awareness. I, I do that too, but I had uncles and relatives in that. And as you know, that really a lot of our native kin didn't accept that because it was the professional Indian. They gave it all, all these derogatory terms and because they, they didn't want the, the attention to themselves that they have given up or acquiesced to that, as you say, the colonization um, on because of time, you think you think is is um, there is encouraging the encouragement that we have because we speak the truth. It's a hard conversation for a lot of people to hear because they they want us to put us in their their, their rational rationalist nationalist type of you know categories where where but you're saying it wrong, Tiokas and Tinker Tink Tinker is saying it wrong. But this is who we are. This is our truth because we've seen it this way. We felt this way. We lived this way. And we're kind of tired of that. And I call it, and I read it again, I'll say it again, the colonial coma. Yep. And we, we, we want to stay awake. And what language is it better than our own language? Right? So I'm, I'm going that far. And I'm That's just wondering. Right. So if anything... This indigenous thing, you wonder what's the next trendy word to come along to describe who we are as native, indigenous, whatever, right? Yep, whatever whatever we are, we end up being at the bottom of their hierarchy of, uh, of values. Hierarchy of values, that's so... Even if they invert that and somehow in a perverted way have us at the, at the top and idolize us, they don't mean it because there's no money in that. No money in that. That's that's the key. Wow. Okay. Well, it, it has so much to think about. This could be a series. So what do you think about continuing this conversation to keep going until, until we just keep going? Let's put it that way. We can do that. I'm, I'm open to doing that. I love talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and any final words that you would think after we talked this hour? Just that the two worldviews, Indian and non-Indian, uh, Euro-Christian, are so different that many of the problems that we're dealing with in the world today are rooted 
in the conquest and domination of that Euro-Christian worldview so that we should not think of preserving our worldview just to preserve Indians, the fate of the world, the fate of human beings, at least in the world, may hang in that balance so that we're not just being selfish in terms of preserving our worldview. It really is one way of modeling a different way of being for our abusers, for the Euro-Christian worldview that has conquered and dominated us for so many centuries now. Uh, if they want to solve this climate crisis, maybe they need to quit thinking of land, grandmother as property, quit commodifying grandfather fire and, and respect grandfather for who he is and all the other relatives that we have in the cosmos around us that they reduce to this word nature. It's living a relationship, living constantly, giving back and not just taking. Uh-huh, Lila Wastelo. So good to have you here. It's an honor and um, very good. Thank you for keeping me. Ah, okay. Good to be with you. Always. The world has ended before. Four times it has died. By fire, floods, cold and dry. The fourth world was to have lasted forever, forevermore. But now, all four legs of the buffalo are gone, and we have gone way too far. We need to talk about it all and make the changes needed the only thing different this time is that we're in this world now the only thing different this time is that we're in this world now so make your spirit stronger make your life last longer Make us one and all, for directions change. And please, stand tall with Mother Earth, child. Please, stand tall with Mother Earth, child. And that was the Buffalo Weavers. From the album, The Dark is Getting Bright. And the name of that little spoken piece was Hidden Falls. And this is Teokas and Ghost Horse. I want to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. It's always a pleasure to have you here listening and taking in what you can. Unexpectedly, no agenda. If you listen, then good on you. And do you know you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. For archive downloading and listening. So Doksha Ake Wachingtelo. We'll see you again soon. We're gonna go out with Who Set the World on Fire, which is a single from Stick Figure. 
Vaseline's. Well, it's a, it's a rendition of an old um, Christian song, I think. But we do it the Vaseline's way. <laughs> 